Lord God, we just continue that prayer that Len just prayed. We ask that you would hold us, that you would remind us who you are, that you, Lord God, would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to preach. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Maybe we can take it down just a little. I think you're going to screw the other pregnant women. Do you kidding me? Okay. Are you kidding me? Jesus. Oh. This is messed up. That sounds terrible. Uh, I'm going to go sneak a peek, see if there's anything I can do. <laughs> okay, it's crowning. I'm seeing the head. Oh, God. Okay, we're almost home. One. You all right, buddy? One sec. What do you look like? I shouldn't have gone in there. Don't go in there. Promise me you don't go in there. One, one, two, three. You pass the shoulders. One more big push. Well, that's where we left off last week. And, and we said that doing the will of God is like that. But for some reason, we think doing the will of God is uh, like taking knowledge of the will of God, like you would maybe like take fruit from some tree. Not bearing the fruit, but taking the fruit and then manipulating the fruit. We think doing the will of God is taking knowledge of the will of God and then imitating the, the will of God, which would not be doing the will of God, but faking the will of God like a Pharisee or really all of human religion. So doing the will of God is not trying really, really, really hard to act good. Doing the will of God is giving birth to the good in flesh, Jesus. Jesus is the will of God in flesh. And you, just sitting, just sitting here listening to his word, are his mother. I know that sounds just nuts, but it's not my idea, it's God's idea, Jesus. Mark 3.34, Jesus looks at the people just sitting around, just sitting around him, listening to the word, and he says this, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You're the mother of Jesus. That's crazy. I, I know. I know that's crazy. But it gets even crazier than that. He said brother and sister and mother. Well, if you're the, the mother of Jesus, then you are also the mother of his brothers and sisters, right? And his brothers and sisters are those just sitting around listening to his word. So look around. You're the mother of the people. Look around. Look around. You're the mother of these. you got some pretty messed up kids. <laughs> and it gets a bit crazier than that. You yourself are a brother or sister of Jesus, and so you are the mother of yourself. You're the mother of your new self, your true self, or Christ's self 
in you. You are giving birth to the will of God in flesh. You are literally the bride of Christ. Like he meant that. You're the bride of Christ giving birth to the body of Christ. You see, my body just does my will. It just does my will. My, my, hand does not, my hand does not will to do my will. My hand does not choose to do my choice. My hand does not judge my will and say, hmm, Peter's will seems pretty good today, so let's will to do the, the will of Peter. No, my hand just does my will. Like that. So then beginning to do God's will for us, beginning to do God's will is, is giving birth to God's will in flesh. It's giving birth to the life of Christ in, in, in others and even in your, yourself. It's giving birth like Catherine Hegel, Hegel, however you say, gave birth in the video. It's giving birth. But we'd all like to think, and we religious people especially, who are in this business, we would like to advertise, we'd all like to think that doing the will of God is something understandable and therefore choosable and therefore teachable and therefore manageable and therefore marketable. We'd like to think it's, our, it's, it's like our own accomplished, but doing the will of God is giving birth. Confusing mysterious, painful, humiliating, and wonderful. The will of God is the word of God, and that's Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also said, John 12, my Father's commandment is is eternal life, not leads to eternal life like some versions translate it. The Greek's really clear. My Father's commandment is eternal life life. God's will is eternal life. You can't just decide to have eternal life. But you will give birth to eternal life. Jesus. So that's where we left off last week. The title of the sermon last week was Happy Mother's Day. The title of the sermon this week is Take a Hike. Last week I referenced Revelation 12. Revelation 12 describes our situation, then it prescribes a therapy for our situation. Revelation 12, 1 through 17. Now, it would be really important if right now you could just forget every Hollywood end times movie you've ever seen, and especially forget every cheap uh, Christian novel about those left behind or whatever, okay? Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in, in heaven. Behold, look, a, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that uh, when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. 
People have debated the identity of this woman for 2,000 years, but it's clear that she's Jesus' mother. In Psalm 2, uh, the, the psalmist talks about the fact that the Son of God, uh, Jesus, would rule the nations with a rod of iron, and we do know that Jesus was caught up to heaven in his ascension, and John has already seen him on the throne of God as the slaughtered lamb. So this woman is Jesus' mother. That's why some have argued that she's Mary, and I suppose she's at least Mary, but she's clothed with the sun. That's huge. And uh, under her feet is the moon, and she has a crown with 12 stars, which matches this description in Genesis chapter 37 of a dream that Joseph had about his family. So some have argued that the woman is Israel. That's Joseph's family. Some have argued that the woman is Eve and all the women in Jesus' lineage leading up to his birth, Eve through Mary. And that would explain why the dragon is so angry because God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And we'll soon read that the dragon is the snake who is also the devil. So the woman may be Eve Israel and Mary, but not just Eve, Israel, and Mary, because a woman will also give birth to those who, quote, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's y'all just sitting here listening to the word this morning. The woman gives birth to y'all, and the woman is y'all. The, the woman is the mother of Jesus, and according to Jesus, Mark 3, that's y'all. She's crying out in birth pains, like Catherine Heigl in the movie, Knocked Up. She's crying out in birth pains. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of delivery, delivery, like you cry out when you say, my God, where are you? What are you doing? Why have you forsaken me? I thought I was doing your will, but this can't be your will. She's crying out in pain and travail, and she's harassed by the devil. But God has prepared a place for her in the wilderness for 1,260 days. 1,260 days is three and a half years according to the Jewish lunar calendar. Three and a half is time, times, and half a time. Time, the singular, is one, plus times, the plural, two, plus a half is three and a half. Three and a half, I don't know if you knew this, is half of seven, and seven is the number of completion. It's a number that shows up, three and a half is a number that shows up in, in the book of Daniel, and it shows up here. It appears to reference several things, but all of them refer to our time of struggle in this world before the consummation of history, the, the seventh day. Well, during this time of struggle, after Jesus has ascended, and before he consummates history, God has a place prepared for the woman in the wilderness. Wilderness means wildness. It's a place where men or women have not created anything. It's just wild. You know, the first acts of, of disobedience to an explicit command of God after the fall in the Bible was the construction of a city. Do you know that? When Cain murders his brother Abel, God sentences him to wandering in the wilderness, but he builds a city. 
Cities insulate people from the wilderness. Canaanites and Jews build Jerusalem, and God reduces Jerusalem to wilderness before the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, not built by any human hand. The Israelites must wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they enter the promised land. Jesus must wander in the wilderness 40 days before he begins his ministry. The prophets, including John the Baptist, are often called to the wilderness before they speak the word of God. St. Paul went into Arabia before he preached the word of God. St. John was exiled on the wilderness island of Patmos where he received this vision. Jesus often retreated to the wilderness and he prescribed the wilderness to his tired disciples. Well, well, there's a place prepared by God for this woman in the wilderness. Next verse. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Now the authority of his Christ they have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short The devil knows that he's lost. The battle's now manifest on, on earth, but the devil has already lost. The devil knows that he's lost. Devil means accuser. But he can no longer accuse Jesus' brothers and sisters before God because the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. And it appears that everyone who's anyone is Jesus' brother or sister, for the accuser has no accusations left to speak before God. On the cross, the devil was disarmed, according to Paul in Colossians chapter 2. John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. On the cross, it is finished. And so resurrected from the dead, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority, remember this? All, all power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, going therefore, knowing that, that all authority has been given unto me, therefore going, uh, disciple all nations, baptize, teach in, in my name, all peoples. Well, the devil knows that he's lost. And yet he's still allowed to speak his lies on the earth. So God must have a purpose even for the devil and, and his lies. Maybe he wants to show the woman that his word is the truth. And he conquers the devil knows that he's lost, but the woman still doesn't seem to know. Not the way that Jesus wants her to know. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time, times, and half a time. Through Moses in Exodus 19, 
God speaks to the Israelites in, in the wilderness, and he says this, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. He's summoning the beast from the sea that many refer to as the Antichrist. We'll talk about him next week. But for now, just focus on verses 15 and 16. The serpent battles the woman with a river that issues from his, his mouth. But the earth helps the woman by opening her mouth and swallowing the river. This, this is really cool. That's, that's pretty amazing, don't you think? In John's writings, the term world usually refers to uh, the way in which this fallen world operates, the world of men, the world that we have created. But the term earth usually refers to God's creation. So in the wilderness, the earth swallows the river that comes from the serpent's mouth. Some, some, some argue that this describes the flight of Christians in 66 AD as they fled Jerusalem and hid from the Roman army in the wilderness of Judea. And maybe it does. History records that that happened. Some, like Hal Lindsey, have argued that this describes the flight of end times super Jewish Christians who get airlifted to safety in the wilderness by the U.S. Air Force whose insignia is the eagle. So the United States saves these like ethnic super Jews from the Antichrist with, the, with an airlift. I suppose that's within the realm of possibility. But the woman is not just first century Jews. And, uh, or first century Christians, or the last century super, the woman is us. Us, that's, that's the people sitting around just listening to Jesus in Mark chapter three, and it's you. Just sitting around listening to the word on May 15th, 2016. It's, it's anyone that does the will of God, like, like it all. So people argue over what this means. But, but I think I have an idea as to what it means. You know, at times I've felt like I'm just drowning in a river. And upon reflections, I, I, I realize that it's like a, just a, a river of lies. And You know, Satan is the father of lies. That's what issues from his mouth, lies. At times I've felt like I'm just drowning in a river and so in desperation I flee the city and I just go for a hike and it's like the earth opens her mouth and swallows the river. Sometimes I feel this intense pressure. Perhaps the best word to describe it would be agony. Just anguish. Anguish that I'm to make life happen and I don't have the ability to make it happen. 
I don't know how to make my children's life happen. I don't know how to make this happen. I don't know how to make church life happen. I don't know how to make my own life happen. I don't know how to be fruitful and multiply. And you remember that's God's first commandment. That is doing God's will. Be fruitful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control, and multiply. Disciple. Teach. Baptize. All nations. God's commandment is be fruitful and multiply. God's commandment is eternal life. And I don't know how to make it happen. I don't know how to do God's will. I can't make God's will happen. The last eight years, I've felt this intense pressure to produce something and this profound sense of failure that I just can't make it happen. I don't know how to grow a church. I don't know how to solve your problems. I don't know how to best help my mom, how to best help my wife. I don't know how to help my kids. I don't know how to keep myself from having a heart attack. And it seems that I used to, but I don't anymore. At times, I can't sleep. I can't seem to pray without constantly whining. I mean, I, like, I wouldn't want to listen to these prayers if I was God. <laughs> I may read my Bible, but then I start writing sermon outlines out of fear, and that doesn't seem to help. just wakes me up even more. I get depressed, and then I ruminate on my own depression. I'm just miserable to be around, and then I start to panic, thinking, I don't have the strength to make this happen. I don't have the space, I don't have the time to make it happen. And then in desperation, unable to sit still, I'll just get up and, and go for a hike. We live on the west side of town, near the Home Depot on Quincy and 470, so it's like a short drive from my house to Mount Falcon State Park. My house uh, was built 16 years ago on Pierre Shale, that was deposited on the bottom of a shallow inland sea. When they excavated uh, my foundation, my, my kids and I, we found a, a bunch of these. Uh, this is called a, a baculite. Um, and uh, these were these strange little animals that, that you can kind of see it up there. The outline of the, the baculite is right there. Found a bunch of these in our, in our foundation. But, but these things uh, were deposited in the bottom of a shallow inland sea in the uh, late Cretaceous period. Uh, that means these strange little critters that look like a squid with a shell were swimming around my backyard 69 million years ago. Now, some people think that the earth is only 10,000 years old because they think the Bible says that, but I don't think the Bible says that. And I don't think we understand time uh, very, very well. But I do believe that when God made this bacolite, he knew that me and the kids would pick it up uh, uh, 69 million later, years later, look at it and say, and say wow, wow, just, just wow. Well, the rocks near my house are tilted up 
uh, toward the Rocky Mountains because of the Laramide orogeny, which lifted the mountains from deep in the earth, deep in the earth, and tilted the sediment up on its side. So driving from my house to Mount Falcon State Park is like driving back in time. It's, it's just about two minutes uh, until I drive past the Niobrara Formation, where the kids and I found this fossilized Inoceramid clam. You know, some people think that science competes with God, but I think it helps me worship. God. Uh, so um, God knew, God knew that this clam would help us worship him uh, when he put it in the bottom of that shallow inland sea 70 million years ago. Well, I drive over Cretaceous sediment and hit Jurassic sediment at the hogback. In the Dakota, the Dakota sandstone, you can see ripple marks from waves that crashed upon an ancient beach 100 million years ago. Then I drive over the Morrison Formation, packed with the bones of giant dinosaurs that waded through the swamps and the bogs 150 million years ago. After crossing over sandstone that once formed a desert larger than the Sahara, I parked my car on sediment that now forms the red rock, sediment that washed off the ancestral Rockies 300 million years ago. As I hike up the trail, the rocks change from red sandstone to gray schist and, and nice. Rocks formed under incredible heat and pressure 1.7 billion years ago as giant island archipelagos crashed into the North American continent as it slowly moved across the surface of the globe. And then as I make my way up the trail, I see a flower. Now, I was a geology major in college, so I like rocks. But you all recognize flowers, right? This is a painting of a flower that recently sold for $44 million. $44 million. So a person created this imitation of a flower, and another person bought this imitation of a flower for $44 million and hung it on a wall somewhere in the city. Yet on my hike, these things are like everywhere. They're just on the side of the path. Millions and billions of them. Even if no one ever sees them, they're there. I mean, they don't need anybody to see them. Nobody planted them, and they're there. Last October, I watched them die. Like the bacolite died in my yard 69 million years ago. I watched them die. And last Thursday, they were back. On my hike, I'll stop for fuzzy caterpillars crawling across the trail. I'll hear birds sing. I'll watch hawks soar on, on the breeze. I'll stop and smell junipers and listen to the breeze blowing through their, through their branches. Sometimes lightning will crash over my head. I'll feel my heart pounding in my own chest. When I get to the top, I can look one way over two million stressed out anxious people and look the other way over, over the continental divide. And by the time I get back to my car, I'm okay. I leave my house totally stressed, anxious over my inability to make life work. And somewhere on my walk, in a way that I can't even comp comprehend, consciously describe, it's like something, someone maybe whispers deep into my soul, Peter, I got this. And I'm okay. I'm nourished and okay. 
And you don't have to be a pastor or a geologist or even go on a hike. You just have to encounter the wilderness, the, the wildness. Something that you know another human being did not create. Like a dandelion. That will work. You didn't put that there. But it's pretty amazing once you get a good look at it. This year's January issue of the National Geographic had this great article titled, Your Brain on Nature. It cites all sort of scientific studies regarding the effects of wilderness on mental, emotional, and physical health. Researchers in England report that people living near green space report less mental distress. Dutch researchers have found that, uh, a lower incidence of, of 15 diseases in people that live within a half mile of green space, even if they never use the green space for exercise. Now, in the article, they talk about how the researchers are just a little bit baffled by this. They don't understand why this is the case. Japanese researchers report that a 15-minute walk in the woods causes significant measurable changes in physiology, which do not occur in a person walking the same distance in the city. In Oregon, correctional officers report a significant decreased level of aggression in prisoners who work out in the gymnasium with nature videos playing on the TV, as opposed to those prisoners that work out in the gymnasium when no nature videos are playing on the TV. In Finland, doctors have designed and prescribed nature trails for their patients to go on that have signs posted on the side of the nature trails that say things like this, bend down and touch the flower. In South Korea, the government has designed three official healing forests. Korean researchers have observed that when volunteers look at urban scenes, their brains show more blood flow to the amygdala, which processes fear and anxiety. But when they view wilderness scenes, areas of the brain associated with empathy and altruism are activated. Researchers at Stanford University studied the brains of 38 volunteers who took 90-minute walks either in a large park or on a sidewalk in the city. Unlike the city walkers, the nature walkers show decreased activity in the subgenual prefrontal cortex, a part of the brain tied to, quote, depressive rumination. Depressive rumination! Ah! That's my problem! That's, that's my problem. National Geographic article ends with the author stating that there are all sorts of theories as to why nature affects the brain the way it does. But to scientists, this largely remains a mystery. But maybe it's not a total mystery. I mean, maybe we really are the woman. Revelation 12, and we have an enemy who battles us with a river of lies that issue from between his bloodless lips. But our Lord calls us to the wilderness where the earth opens her mouth and swallows the river, the river of lies. What lies? Well, Satan's lies are manifold, and they are profoundly subtle. And yet all his lies begin with one lie that was spoken to a woman in a garden long ago. It wasn't even an outright lie so much as a suggestion. God had said that he would make humanity in his own image and likeness. He is good and in him is life. He will make us fruitful and he will cause us to multiply. He speaks a word and that word is his will and his will happens. His word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He is called the eschatos, the ultimate, the last, the eschatos Adam, and we are his bride. And he makes us fruitful with his life and his penetrating presence, the presence of love. He is the word God speaks that makes all things and makes us in his image. He is the good in flesh. But on the sixth day of creation, Satan suggested to the woman that she take knowledge of the good from the tree in the middle of the garden. Take knowledge of the good and use the good to make herself good and truly alive. She took knowledge of the good and discovered that she had become evil. She took knowledge of the life and began to die. We all take the life of the good hanging on a tree in a garden of Gethsemane, and we call that tree the cross. Well, I'm just pointing out that Satan tempts all of us to take the life of the good to create ourselves in the image of God, and he does it with an absolute river of lies, but all of the lies are really just this one lie. You must create yourself. You must save yourself, which means you must judge yourself and justify yourself and redeem yourself. You must make yourself fruitful. Satan tempts us to believe that we create ourselves with our own choices, in the power of our own will. Some people call that free will. As if the chooser that makes the choices is uncreated. As if the will that wills the good is uncreated. Satan tempts us to believe that we each in and of ourselves are our own uncreated creator. That's God. I mean, no wonder we're so stressed out. That's a lot of pressure being God. It is really, really, really hard to be God. And the older I get, the harder it's becoming. So the lie, the lie is that I create God. And the truth is that God creates me. Well, if you believe that you create yourself, that self that you think you create can never be at peace in the presence of God, your creator. Make sense? I'll say it again. If you believe that you create yourself, that self that you think you create can never be at peace in the presence of God, your creator. So close your eyes, if you would. Just close your eyes. And listen to your breath. Feel your breath. Each breath is a gift. Sometimes you can feel your heart beating. That only happens because God wills each heartbeat. Now think about that thought.
you can only think that thought because God thinks that thought and wills it into existence. That's, that's quite a thought. You continue to exist moment by moment upon the will of God like a feather floats in the wind in a gentle breeze. If you're proud, if you think you deserve you, if you think you create you, that you will be utterly destroyed by the manifest presence of God. Like darkness is destroyed by the light. So open your eyes. Because I hope you see something. And when you see it, it's really quite shocking. It's so simple and yet we miss it. And, and I think it's this. It, Salvation is simply being at peace with the fact that you are created. In other words, salvation is faith in grace. And faith is a gift of grace. Your will does not create you. God's will creates you and creates your will. God's will creates faith in, in you, God's will is God's word, and God's word is Jesus. So Eve, it's Jesus that makes you fruitful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith. 